According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 12 this morning. We're still uh, in this section here dealing with verses 9, 10, and 11. Domestic tranquility is presented as the idea with applications to mankind, animal kind, and the land. And uh, verse 9 stresses uh, humanity. Verse 10 uh, mentions the animals. And then in verse 11, we'll talk about the land itself. He who tills his land will have plenty of bread. So does that mean if you're not a farmer, you have no business eating? What, uh, what if your employment is in non-food pursuits? See, uh, how does that work? So we'll talk about that as well. It is a, an interesting uh, principle of human economics that uh, when it comes to the accumulation of wealth and the uh, expenditures of, of money and things of that nature, um, the great equalizer, of course, is that we all need to eat. <laughs> and so uh, different, different aspects there. What a culture does in its production of food is, uh, is interesting because uh, the more people that it takes to feed everybody, then the fewer people um, you have remaining to do other things. Uh, but then the less people you have... So in other words, if it takes 90% of your population to feed everybody, then you only have 10% of your population over and above that, that are free to pursue other endeavors, okay? Scientific endeavors or artistic endeavors or recreational endeavors or or what have you. Um, But if you can feed your entire population with 10% of your population or 5% of your population or 3% of your population, uh, as we have observed now in modern times in in our culture, uh, then that frees up all kinds of people. You have a human capital then that is able to pursue other things. And, uh, and it's, it's amazing, it shouldn't be, but it is, uh, the advancements then that happen technologically, scientifically, artistically, musically, everything else, because you have that many more people that are available to, uh, to engage in, in those kind of things. And uh, so it's a, it's a curious, curious thing to me. Anyway, we'll talk about that as well from, uh, from verse 11, about how the land is what feeds us. It shouldn't surprise us because we come from the land. We are dust creatures, right? Uh, Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And uh, we come from the dirt. And it's no surprise then that the dirt is what um, provides for for food in uh, one way or the other. So, all right. Uh, Let's open with a word of prayer and then uh, ask the Father to be faithful in our study once again here today. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, we do call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Father, bless us through these powerful principles. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so yes, this is the midst of verse uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11 here. It's a poetic section of the chapter, and so we're handling it as such. We'll do something similar as well with verses 12, 13, and 14. We will handle those as a unit 
uh, because the poetic structure of those verses uh, lend itself to that as well. Um, but not quite there yet. We're still dealing with this. Applications man word, applications animal word. And uh, spent some time last week talking about the animals. Uh, Proverbs 12.9 is the first out of 19, better than proverbial contrasts. And we discussed that. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. And uh, we have to be careful, I think, with every one of these. We want to see them for what they are. Not every better than contrast is giving you something that is absolutely wrong. Some do, uh, but not all. It, it does express better than. And depending on the context, then you have to look at the than statement and ask yourself, well, is this always wrong? Is this wrong in every circumstance? Is this an absolute principle? Or is it simply in contrast with the other that the other should be preferable for you and I in the, uh, in the plan of God? All right, so that was subpoint A. Subpoint B, we talk about the modest life unconcerned for social status. And that's what we're dealing with here in verse 9. Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant. And so that's a modest life. And you're not sacrificing everything and you're not going into debt and uh, all of the problems that come with that when you are living the bankrupt life that's putting on a show. As it says uh, there, he who honors himself and lacks bread. The, the reality is, is that he's so poor, he doesn't, he's so far in debt and he's, he's uh, maintaining a lifestyle through fraudulent means and he's on borrowed time when it comes right down to it. Not the only passage that addresses that, we've got other passages as well. And this then led us into subpoint C where we were last week talking about animals and uh, really looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and I want to get right back to that again here this morning dealing with Genesis 1 and 2 and the aspect of animals. The sole life of his beast is worthy of merciful regard. All right, the soul life of his beast is worthy of merciful regard. And we see this here, it's it's plain as anything in verse 10. Uh, there will be other uh, aspects in uh, chapter 27 also where we will deal with animals in, in uh, Proverbs 27, verses 23, 26, and 27. But, but just staying here for the moment, uh, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. That is the righteous application of a righteous man. And uh, yes, we have sovereignty. Yes, we are. Uh, we have dominion over the animal realm. But the dominion mandate is not a license to be cruel. We are not uh, because uh, uh, just because we have authority, just because we have ownership, is not a license for cruelty. Because whatever ownership we have comes as a, a delegated responsibility from the one who has ownership over us. <laughs> the one who has ownership over everything, and of course that's God. And so God uh, gave Adam the responsibility to name the animals, and he did. He was faithful in that regard. He named the animals, and he was, uh, he was uh, appropriate in that, in that uh, responsibility. Uh, but that does not mean that he can then as a tyrant just go out and indiscriminately start bringing them harm or start torturing them or start, uh, he has no right to, uh, to uh, eliminate a species, for example, see, and, uh, and different aspects there. We have every freedom to kill any particular individual animal we choose to kill. And that's our freedom in Christ. That's our freedom, not just, not just in Christ, that's our freedom in Adam, 
right? Part of the Adamic mandate. We can kill an animal if we so choose. And there's many reasons that we would want to kill an animal. To eat it, to keep it from uh, harming our, our property or keep it from harming a person. If it comes down to an animal life or a human life, uh, that animal's got to die, okay? Remember the uproar when, when the, the kid fell into the gorilla pen, right? And, and they shot and killed Harambe, the, you know, and, and how many protests did that spark? And even to this day, all these, you know, remember, you know, memorials on, on Harambe, the, the gorilla, you know, it's insane. You know, it, would you rather the kid died? You know, and I think if they were honest, they would say so. That, uh, that, that humanity is the problem, that we're intruding on nature. And that uh, really um, the, the animal life is worth more than our life because animals live in harmony with the, with the universe and we, we just ruin everything, okay? That's their worldview, that's their religion. Remember they have, they have turned it upside down and backwards. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And they're living in open defiance of his design at every step. So uh, we see those aspects there. Uh, returning then to Genesis and what we dealt with last week. And uh, then we'll pick it up after that. But um, you recall, if you were with us one week ago, in Genesis 1, um, there are similarities between the animal realm and the human realm, but huge differences, and so we don't take them as moral equivalents or spiritual equivalents or any other kind of equivalents. Uh, they are nephesh, we are nephesh, but that's, uh, that's as close as we get. And I think the best understanding of nephesh will help us to understand that. So uh, in verse 20 of Genesis 1, God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth and in the open expanse of the heavens. And so we have introductory concepts here that relate to animals as living creatures. Okay, And uh, we might want to say, well, well, aren't the plants alive? The plants have life. It's a form of life. But God doesn't call it that. All right? The life of, of, of living, the life of animal uh, is, is, is that which nephesh speaks to. It speaks of, of that it's alive, it breathes, it moves, okay? Plants don't do that. The tree stays where it is, okay? Where it's planted. It's not uh, mobile in that uh, living sense. All right. Uh, so there's aspects of life that get connected with nephesh, as we see here. But it's not spiritual life, okay? Then verse 21, God created the tanin, the dragons, the great sea monsters, or the, uh, the large uh, sea dragons. And every living creature that moves, and again, here's the emphasis of life, and here's the emphasis on movement, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Now I get it, plants also, uh, you know, replicate, plants pollinate and plants, uh, but not like the animals. Okay? In fact, in many cases, the plants require animals. They require insects and bugs and birds and, and, and other factors in order for the plants to uh, to uh, reproduce. In order for the pollination to occur, many plants require the, the animal realm for their, uh, for their um, pollination. Okay? 
Animals, on the other hand, require no plants for their, uh, their fruitful multiplying. All right. So God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. So when we're talking basic biology or basic zoology, whatever we want to talk about, with the animal realm, this is what we see. We do see God's blessing. There's no question that there is God's blessing upon the animal realm. And yes, God sees the animal realm and He sees that the animal realm is good. And He expects the animal realm to multiply. He designed it to do that. He designed the, 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 the sexual activity of the animal realm and how it is that they do that. Alright, then God said, then we get to, and, and so far we've just seen fish and birds. When we get to day six, now we have the land animals. And we have, why, why were they on day six instead of day five? Why, uh, why didn't he do uh, air, sea, and land? Right? All on, on uh, day five and reserve man by himself, humanity, on day six. Okay? It's because, uh, the, I think, because God designed for humanity to have the closest relationship with land-based animals, closer than birds and fish and uh, plants and anything else. All right. So day six. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And so here we have a threefold division of land-based animal life, and it's based upon a distinction between um, uh, domestic and wild in the sense that cattle speaks of those that tend to live in our habitations, and then uh, beasts of the earth tend to not live in our habitations. We would think of them as domestic versus wild. Animals we're happy to have in our close proximity and animals we would rather not be in our close proximity. That's, that's how the Scripture delineates it. Okay? We're fine with uh, cows and sheep and goats and horses and uh, those kind of things. Uh, we're, we're fine if they're on our property and and uh, they can live uh, within our boundaries and in our barns or maybe in our house or whatever we're doing there. Um, but lions and tigers and bears, um, yeah, oh my, um, we don't keep them in our property. We don't keep them in our house. We don't keep them, um, you know, there's a difference between a farm and a zoo and uh, uh, domestic animal life versus wild animal life. And then there's the creepy crawly things, okay? The creepy crawlies are something else. And uh, they go where they go and you find them in your house and you get them out and uh, they have a purpose. Even before the fall there was a function for cockroaches, okay? Don't know what it might have been, but uh, it had a function before the fall. All right. And God saw that it was good. Now, Then God said, let us make man in our image. Huge difference. Have we seen the image and likeness of God prior to this? No. Not with the plants, not with the seas, not with the land, not with the animals, not with the birds, not with the fish, not with the the, uh, any of the classifications of land animal. Okay? It's only humanity. Adam. Man. In our image. According to our likeness. And let them rule. And notice, everything that precedes is now falling under the dominion of humanity. 
Why? Because we're the image of God. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We have sovereignty, right? But it's delegated sovereignty. It's appointed by God. And uh, we can do word studies uh, on, uh, on the word rule there in verse 26. Also in verse 28, we have rule, but it's also combined with subdue. And that's a different word study. That requires a lot of work. And I think all of these things are, are useful for us to understand biblical Christianity, but also I think they're absolutely hated by Satan and those that serve him that deny our function in the uh, dominion mandate of humanity. All right, so let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, over the cattle, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. That's humanity, mankind. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we have the singularity of humanity in God's image, and then we have the duality of, again, the male and female roles, okay? The male and female, um, which is, and it's bigger than biology. It's not just for being fruitful and multiply, although that's kind of the no-brainer, but it's bigger than that because it requires the male and female, uh, the duality in order to fully image God. Mankind is what images God. And it's not good for the man to be alone. He needs a helper. All right? And that's helping not, not to procreate. It's helping to image God. All right. So God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Were animals ever told to rule or subdue? They were told to be fruitful and multiply. They were told to fill but they're not told to rule and they're not told to subdue because that's not their function. Okay? And in, it shouldn't be difficult. It ought to be simple. They've got, um, you know, <laughs> there, is a, there is a food chain and at least the, uh, the Darwinist accepts that. But they, they take a chain and they think it's a circle and they create this godless mythology of, of, of things. Um, well, beyond food, how about let's just have God's chain of dominion and God's chain of purpose? And why is it that this serves that and, and this rules that? And how does this operate? And instead of turning it upside down and backwards, let's operate in, in God's design. All right. So all of this comes out of Genesis 1, verses 20, 21, 24 and uh, the surrounding context there, okay? Um, we also discussed briefly um, aspects on this uh, verse, the fact that they were vegetarian to start with, verse 29, God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed on, that is on the surface of the earth, every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And so when you look at the a vegetable realm as opposed to the animal realm, the vegetable realm was designed to feed the animal realm. And the key is, is the seed within that vegetable realm allows for the vegetables to, uh, the plant life to, uh, to uh, repopulate and, be, and reproduce, which allows for more of the animal life to, uh, to consume and to, uh, to eat. All right. Later on, as the flood approaches, animals also will become food eligible in, uh, in the plan of God. All right. 
Um, so, uh, verse 30 says, um, to man and to the beasts, okay, I have given everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So that's the design. And this is the first process, okay? This is before sin, this is before the fall, all right? When we get before, as the flood approaches, we're going to see, or as, as the flood is finished then, when they get off the ark, then we're going to see that animal life also is going to become eligible for food consumption. Okay, so that's that. Get to chapter 2, verse 7, verse 19, verse 20. More uh, elements here where we're going to see the connections between life, living things, nephesh, okay? And I think all of these are, are worth uh, deeper studies. So, um, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Man became a living being. Now, this is the process here. This shows us the steps that he went into play, into play and things that are similar to animals. <coughs> animals came from the earth. Animals have breath. Okay? Animals are called nephesh. Animals are, are even are said to have had the breath of life. Now they're not in the image of God, and that's, that's the difference we're making here. So, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living being. And uh, there it is. All right, then we, uh, the aspect of the Garden of Eden and why the garden was different from outside the garden, why it is that the earth needs to be subdued Okay, Adam and Eve were told to subdue the earth and before they sinned. What does that tell you? That the earth's a wild place. And that was before sin. That was before the fall. That was before God cursed the earth as the consequence of Adam's sin. The uncursed earth requires dominion. The uncursed earth requires uh, being tamed, being subdued. It is a wild planet, and that's by design, not a consequence of sin. And, uh, and this. And uh, God, so out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that pleasing to the sight, good for food, tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why does that matter? Who cares if the tree is attractive? As long as it feeds me, who cares what it looks like? God cares what it looks like. Why did God design all these varieties of trees, all these varieties of food? Why aren't we like the cattle? Why don't we just go out in the backyard and eat grass like goats or something? Okay, I'm glad we're not. I can't imagine there's a variety of grass flavor. It seems like it's a humdrum existence related to that. Okay, but uh, man, we can we get a variety of beef or chicken or or pork or lamb, I had lamb last night, or whatever, you know, and different seasonings and different flavors, and God loves the variety, and I think that's great. And why did God design us with taste buds if uh, we weren't supposed to appreciate the variety? Or hearing that can distinguish in different kinds of sounds and, and all these things, or, or smells, different aromas and that are all pleasant. No, not all pleasant, some are nasty. But there's a variety of odors and smells and aromas and fragrances. And why is that? It's by God's design. All right. So um, we discussed the boundaries, we discussed the rivers, we discussed the minerals. 
all the, uh, the aspects here. Now, God uh, put man in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. Told man, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely. This is before sin, before the fall. And he has to eat. Unfallen man requires food. So guess what? What does that mean? That means there's plant death before the fall. That means he plucks the food and he eats and that, that fruit dies and it's digested and it's excreted. All right? And, uh, and, and, uh, and how, do the, how do the plants reproduce? They die. First Corinthians tells us that. You bury the seed. It, it then springs forth with new life. You have death and resurrection portrayed in the plant realm. And that's by design. The fall has nothing to do with that. The only death that was created by Adam's original sin was the spiritual death of humanity's separation from the holiness of God. We want to be clear on that. Don't abuse Romans 5 like so many people do. Physical death is not a consequence of Adam's sin. All right, so we want to be clear on that. Um, Then cultivating. Cultivating and keeping. These are activities that are, um, the, the, by definition, these are the activities that go into um, uh, subduing the earth. Cultivating and keeping. If you don't maintain it, how long does it take for cultivated land to go wild? Yeah, not long. Not long at all. You know, if we quit paving our streets and repaving and resurfacing, and how long would it take before this, this place was just overgrown and returned back to, to the water? It doesn't take long. All right. So you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. They didn't die physically that day. They died spiritually. The wages of sin is spiritual death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, the Lord God says, not good for the man to be alone. I'll make him a helper suitable for him. This is the aspect here. I want to stress this in verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky. So they have an earthly origin like humanity has an earthly origin. There is a similar kinship between humanity and animals in the sense that we both come from the earth. We're carbon-based life forms, you might say. Brought them to the man to see what he would call them. I love this. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And uh, in the process of naming all these animals, we have, of course, the uh, expression of sovereignty. God delegated it. Adam did it. Adam has sovereignty because he gave it its name. But there was no helper corresponding to him. And so this is when the, uh, the woman is now produced. And, God, and Adam gives her a name. She was brought to him. She was suitable for him. Woman was created for man's sake, not man for woman's sake. Women are here for the man, not men for the women. That's the order. That's the scripture. And yet neither is independent of the other. It's a mutual reciprocal uh, responsibilities in God's design. All right, so that's how chapter two comes to an end, and that's uh, hopefully clear. <laughs> okay, so much of that, 
our world rebels against so much of that um uh, Satan denies denies the male and female relationship, denies families, denies marriage, denies animals, denies all of this. Every last aspect from Genesis 1 and 2 is totally hated by Satan and rejected in, in his uh, rebellion to this day. We see it all the time. Alright, now from this, our word is nephesh. And I didn't give you a, yeah I did, I gave you a strongest number up top, 5315. Um, but understand what nephesh is and understand its equivalence. It's equivalence in Greek. It's equivalence in, in uh, Latin. All right? We're talking about nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H. The Greek equivalent is psuche, it's soul. This is our psychological life. This is the fact that we have souls. Does an animal have a soul? Yes. An animal has a soul. An animal is called a nephesh. An animal has a soul, an animal is a soul. An animal uh, moves, an animal is animate. That's what an animal is. The Latin is anima. That's where we get the word animal. So saying that an animal does not have a soul is like saying an animal does not have an anima. It is anima. That's what it is. And so it is a living creature. It is alive. It moves. Okay? That's the difference between animals and plants. Plants don't move, they sit there. Oh, they can wave in the wind. But they don't decide all of a sudden, I'm sick of being in this backyard, I want to, the grass is greener on the other backyard, and, and uh, decide to, to hop the fence and move over there. Okay? Unless you're reading mythology or Tolkien or whatever and talking about ants or trees or, you know, plants don't. They're not animal. Okay? And, uh, and so... And, and you think about, too, how they interact with one another on a, on a friendly basis, on an adversarial basis, okay? Do they get along? Do they not get along? Uh, do they... That's, that's all soul function, okay? Driven by instinct. Animals, uh, the, the, the soul animal is driven by instinct. See, they don't have the spirit, the, the, the human spirit that we have. They're not in the image of God. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, they're not, uh, you can't preach to your dog, you can't preach to your cat. You could be the best evangelist on earth, your cat will never accept the gospel. Okay? And, uh, and you can't sit down and reason with an animal. The animal soul is not a rational soul. It is an instinctive soul. And the scripture bears that out. In fact, scripture defines it like that. Creatures of instinct born to be killed. And who's going to kill them? either a, another animal or us because their purpose is to die okay now think about it is that our purpose what's our purpose we're in the image and likeness of god and our purpose is not to die and in christ even we will live even if we do die right and he who believes in me will never die that's our that's our purpose not so with the animals the animal is here to die and the animal will, uh, you know, procreate and repl- replicate itself uh, again and again and again, so that when it does die, its uh, species will will continue. Say under normal circumstances, that's the design. So, uh, by the way, this is why it's spoken of in um, in scripture 
For false teachers, for example, read Second Timothy or Second Peter, right? Read Jude. Read the descriptions of these false prophets, these false teachers. They're like unreasoning brutes. They're like these animals, uh, creatures of instinct, born to be killed. And uh, the, the 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 scriptures are not flattering. Anytime humanity is compared to an animal, that's why again it's it's ludicrous to me when the anti-Bible side of things, of, of our culture, views the animal realm as the model that we should be more like them. Really? Okay? And, and they want to use it to justify anything and say, well, look, see, it happens in the animal realm. It must be natural. And, and, and what, are they, what have they just done? They, they, they conflated natural with good. Okay? It must be natural, it must be good, it must be right, it must be, well, if, if the animals do it, does that give us license to do it? In their worldview it does, which I find tragic, okay? Because I find there's cruelty and barbarity in the animal realm as well, but they, they don't want to highlight those things, okay? Again, it's selective blindness when they try to promote their lies. Um, so, the Greek word is psuche, the Greek word is soul, and it is the equivalent for nephesh, all throughout the Septuagint, all throughout as, as concept uh, into the New Testament usage, there's no question, animals have souls. They don't have this, the human spirit that we have. Okay. And again, anima. That's what speaks of something that's animated. Something that is, if it's animated, it moves. It's not a still picture, it's an animated picture. You know, moving pictures. It's animated. An animal is a moving thing. A living, moving thing. Because it has a nephesh. It is a nephesh. That's what we deal with there. Now, when the nephesh departs, the body dies. The body cannot live without the nephesh. And this is the way to illustrate death. And God illustrates death in the plant realm, in the animal realm, in the human realm. God illustrates death. Death is always that separation. It's a separation. When the nephesh, when the nephesh is separated from the, from the body, from the basar, okay? When the suke is separated from the soma, the, the soma can't live without a suke. When the soul departs, the body is dead. That's the definition. A couple of passages where we can reference this. Uh, let's see, do I want to get that far? Let's see, when I get to, um, of course, the flood, in, uh, let me just grab Genesis 6 on my way to Genesis 35. It's not in the notes, but probably should be. Um, this is when he's pronouncing judgment of the flood, and... Um, the consequences here, and the need to put animals on the ark, by the way. And look at what they're described as here. They're described as nephesh, they're described as souls, they're described as uh, living things. And so uh, if, it's, if it's alive, all flesh which is in, in which is the breath of life, that's Genesis 6, 17, notice. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. Right, the the breath of life, living things breathe. the the the, the breathing is is essential for the uh, for the soul life, and we're going to see that connection between soul and blood here shortly. But breathing is essential. That's why it's uh, 
That's why we have a uh, circulatory system that is that cannot be separated from the respiratory system. Because breathing is connected with the blood and the, and the blood circulation that is the soul life. All right. So, um, again, verse 17, Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, again, chaya, life, this is animal life, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food, which is edible, and this is uh, plant life at this point, uh, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and, and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. And I really think that the, uh, the design for uh, uh, the, the vegetarian diet as opposed to the omnivorous or carnivorous diet, uh, God in his mercy... Uh, did not grant the the meat uh, consumption until after the flood. Because think about how ugly this would have been on the ark if if, uh, animals would be meat eaters at this point. All right. They were not meat eaters until after the flood, and that's, again, God's grace in action. Okay. Not, by the way, a consequence of the fall. Vegetarians tell you that, oh, it was only after the fall that, you see, we we uh, we should just eat plants just like they did before the fall. They're just twisting scriptures in, in complete ignorance. It has nothing to do with the fall. Nothing to do with sin at all. Okay? I mean, to follow their logic, we should go, you know, strip naked and go live in a garden. You know, but please don't do that either. All right. So, um, birds, food, and these aspects there. So then God does. And beyond the two, uh, the pairs, the mated pairs that were going to repopulate the planet, there were additional uh, animals for sacrifice. Uh, and we see that in chapter 7. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens. You know, you realize that? They had clean versus unclean distinction, distinctions even before Mosaic law. Gentiles understood clean versus unclean as a process of their priesthood. Male and female, the animals that are not clean too, male and his female, birds of the sky by sevens, male and female. And uh, so forth. All right. And the animals were for sacrifices. They're going to get off the ark. They survived the flood. Why? So they could be sacrificed. They lived long enough to be sacrificed. Again, God's purpose. Peter wouldn't like that, right? You know, the idea that we have we breed animals for research. The idea that we breed animals to experiment to test medications, to test chemicals, and all of that. PETA hates that. But that's God's design. You keep them alive long enough, you produce another crop, another crop, another you know, batch, another litter, whatever the case, you're, you're replicating these, these mice, these rats. Okay, I have no sympathy for a rat. But they're, they're able to be tested. That's perfectly within the boundaries of our mandate. Okay, um, anyway. 
read the calendar uh, references here about the, the first day and the, the, the month and the year and when they went in. You'll notice in verse 11, the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day of the month. On the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. The floodgates of the sky were open. Why, why do we pay attention to stuff like that? Well, it's important for calendar studies when uh, you're in the book of Daniel or you're in other places and you're finding that, guess what? This planet used to have 30-day months, used to have 360-day years, 12 months or 30 days. Why is that? And then how did that change? How do we get to where we are today? Anyway, so um, again, we got breath of life, we've got creepy things, we got animals going on the ark. And then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. The water increased, lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. Water prevailed, increased greatly upon the earth. Water, uh, verse 19, even the high mountains, everywhere under heaven was covered. Water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. And so verse 21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts, every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind of all that was on the dry land. Well, guess what? There is no dry land. And in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land. See, I don't think fish had to go on the ark. But uh, land animals and birds are the ones that are listed here. All right. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. And water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Again, we're tracking days, we're tracking months, we're tracking years, watching the calendar here. And uh, get into chapter 8, water begins to subside. At the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, now wait a minute, 150 days later, now we're in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, Anyway, there's work to be done on that. Um, okay, well that's enough on that. Let's go over to, because there's breath of life and then there's the covenant that he makes that he will never again uh, destroy the animals. And there we have it. Okay, so over to chapter 35. Here's the proof that when the soul departs, the body dies. Genesis 35, and this is uh, Rachel dying in childbirth. And um, hmm. well, okay. So verse 16 says, when they journeyed from Bethel and there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. Remember Ephrathah, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. They're on their way there. Rachel began to give birth and she suffered severe labor. So when she was in severe labor, the midwife said, do not fear, now you have another son. Okay, remember, we, we, in life of Jacob, we did not have a very flattering picture of Rachel, okay? Leah was a godly woman. Leah gave spiritual names to all of her children. Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Judah. Leah was a mother that had divine viewpoint and, and trusted in the Lord. Leah had everything in the world going for her. Rachel was an idol worshiper, selfish. Uh, she finally has a son and she names him, give me another one. <laughs> okay. She names him Joseph. Um, and now God says, okay, I'll give you another one, but you're not going to enjoy this one. And uh, she dies 
in the childbirth here. So it came about, as her nephesh was departing, for she died, that she named him Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. And again, what's the spiritual capacity of this woman? Son of my agony. And uh, Jacob had to give the new name there. All right. Soul departing. Over in 1 Kings 17, another description of this. 1 Kings 17, verses 21 and 22. Here's Elijah in the widow's house, and the widow's son died. And, and um, verse 20, he called out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, you have also brought calamity to the widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die. So he stretched himself upon the child three times, called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's nephesh return to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the nephesh of the child returned to him and he revived. And so Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room to the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. All right. So there's that. When the nephesh departure from the body is physical death. Thirdly, and this gets overlooked a lot, and this is some of the deepest doctrine you'll ever understand, but blood is the nephesh. Where do you keep your soul? Okay, by the way, I mean, you know, you ever play this game with, with a child? All right, point three, blood is the nephesh. Deuteronomy 9, 4, Deuteronomy 12, 23. Blood is the nephesh. The blood is the soul. Okay? You know, so you play with a, a little game and you say, you know, where's your, where's your uh, elbow? You know, and your, whatever that little kid you're playing with, your nephew or niece or whoever, you know, touch your elbow, touch your other elbow, where's your cheek, where's your chin, where's your nose, you know, where's your other nose? And then they, they look at you like you're weird. Because children know that you only have one nose, right? You got two ears, one nose. I mean, they're, they're checking this stuff out. They're, they're learning. And you can do this with a young child. Well, ask them, where's your soul? Okay? Well, don't ask them that because they'd have to cut themselves or something or demonstrate blood. What is the connection between blood and the soul? Well, we're told blood is the soul. Blood is the nephesh. And so in Deuteronomy 9, and this goes into some of the uh, restrictions upon uh, why they cook the food and eat their meat and not partake of the blood. I think it's also why there was a delay, why God in progressive revelation had to teach principles leading up to the eating of meat. They couldn't eat meat right away. Not until they learned these principles of soul. So Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 4 Is that what I'm looking for? Nope, that's not what I'm looking for. Okay, well let's try 1223. And I'll have to find my other reference at some point. (coughs) Fix my typo. Genesis 9 4. 
Genesis 9.4. So let me fix my typo. All right. This shouldn't be Deuteronomy 9.4, this should be Genesis 9.4, and then Deuteronomy 12.23. So, man, we were just there. Looking at the flood, looking at Noah and the ark, looking at now the provision for eating animals. So, um, chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The, the mandate continues. Mandate continues. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky. So the mandate continues, but now the work is going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult. Because now there's going to be fear, terror. There's going to be built into the animal instinct is going to come a, a uh, hostility an antipathy against the realm of man. And that's, that's, that's extraordinary, okay? And it's not as a consequence of the fall, okay? I think it's the aftermath of the angelic intrusion into humanity. I think it's the aftermath of what led up to the flood. And it's the recognition of the intensified angelic conflict. See, the church age is not the only age where the angelic conflict was intensified. Here it's intensified. And now uh, animals have an instinctive fear of humanity. Okay? Uh, on every beast of the earth, every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground, you, and all fish of the sea into your hand, they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now, later on, some of this gets restricted under Mosaic law, pork and other unclean animals they won't be able to eat. But in the Gentile stewardship, everything was wide open. They could eat everything, any animal. Just as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You shall not eat flesh with its nephesh, its dom, its blood. Okay? And so here we have a clear statement that blood is nephesh. Nephesh is blood. So the soul, the, our soul, consider this, not just the animal life, but humanity as well, nephesh is blood. Jesus, of course, shed his blood on the cross. It says he poured out his soul. The work that he accomplished on the cross in his, in his uh, work of atonement. All right. Um, so, um, surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the nephesh, the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for he's in the image of God. See, we're building upon the earlier doctrine now with more doctrine. And this is where uh, humanity is being taught these issues of soul and soul life and uh, blood. And uh, notice there's no, there's no capital punishment for killing an animal. Okay? And so we can eat animals all we want. There's no capital punishment for taking the life of an animal. But if man or animal takes the life of man, there is capital punishment required. Required for that. Why? 
Because man is the image of God. And the shedding of blood is a significant attack on God's image. So, God requires then a judicial blood shedding. And that, uh, that is true whether the homicide is conducted by a man or an animal. That animal has to be put down. If that animal has become a manslayer, that animal has to be put down. And that's not, uh, that's not just for secular reasons because it's smart to put down a, an animal that now has the taste of blood. It's, it's a spiritual issue for humanity in defending the, the image of God. That's our role. All right. So, I will require your lifeblood from every beast. That is your nephesh, your uh, dom, because the nephesh is the dom. The, the soul is the blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, notice though, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. The very first exercise of capital punishment before it's given to the state, before the sword is given to the state, the, the, the avenger of blood, guess what? It's a kinsman redeemer. That's a principle from day one. Why? Because it's a principle of biblical truth. The kinsman redeemer is the one who lays down his life to redeem us. Okay? Anyway, there's principles there as well when it comes to vengeance and uh, in those aspects. All right, so that's Genesis 9.4. Why I'm not a vegetarian. Deuteronomy 12.23 gets restated now in the law. Now in the law, of course, now we have restrictions. Some animals are unclean and can't be eaten under any circumstances. But the clean animals, you're free to eat. Again, the restrictions, though, not with the blood. Do not eat the blood. The blood is the life. The blood is the nephesh. You shall not eat nephesh with, and I think it's basar, with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it out on the ground like water. You shall not eat it so that it may be well with you and your sons after you. You will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. Okay? And, and don't you know, all the commentaries want to say, well, this, wow, this is amazing. The Hebrews had all these traditions about, uh, you know, uh, hygiene or uh, traditions about food safety, traditions about how to avoid uh, bloodborne illnesses and whatever. And weren't they, wasn't God just so smart to give them all these helpful hints of, of, uh, of medical and dietary and, and cooking uh, things before science got caught up with the Bible and, and whatever, whatever. Okay, great. I get that. Um, there are disease issues by eating uncooked food, okay? But beyond that, this is a spiritual principle that is being taught to the realm of humanity for the Gentile stewardship first and then for Israel's stewardship under Mosaic law. And the principle is not consuming blood because of the spiritual principles in so doing, okay? And not consuming blood because of the spiritual principles in so doing. Why do so many satanic cults include blood sacrifice and blood consumption? Why is that? Why all the mythology with vampire legends? Why all the satanic fascination with consumption of, uh, of these things? Why do so many pagan tribes have cannibalism? As, uh, are they so featured? Why is that? Because Satan knows. He knows about the nephesh in the blood. Okay? 
Why does God so graciously limit who we share our bodily fluids with? Because God is genius and God is presenting spiritual principles in how we have relationships one with another. Soul relationships one with another. Not just body fluids. Okay? It's not just a bodily act when you are one with your spouse. All right. Well, we have that. We'll have to come back next week to handle verse 11. Breadwinning work honors God from the heart while vain pursuits are heartless. And uh, since I'm often accused of being heartless, I should be able to do a good job of teaching this. Um, But to lack heart, it's an idiom we've seen already in Proverbs, lacking heart is, uh, is the expression for lacking sense or for being insane, being out of your mind, but it's lacking heart. And um, the, uh, the benefits, of course, of work as design, work was not a part of the curse, work was before the fall. Breadwinning work honors God from the heart, while vain pursuits are heartless. And that's uh, commentary on our culture, <laughs> if nothing else. So we'll, uh, we'll discuss the emptiness of emptiness and the vanity of vanities and uh, the, the life apart from God's design for us to honor Him in our work. Father, I thank You for this day. I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for the um, benefits of being able to study to show ourselves approved and to find very practical areas. Your Proverbs can just get so practical in detailing all these things. So thank You for laying it out there for our acceptance and for our obedience. We line up with Your plan for our blessing. We line up with Your plan and design for Your uh, favor to be bestowed upon us. And uh, we certainly don't want to live in open defiance of Your design so that uh, we place ourselves under uh, the the, uh, hand of Your judgment. Thank You again for being merciful, Father. We thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.